Hello and welcome to the Bad Take. My name is Tamara and I'm Himal. Today we have a special guest with us and without further ado I will let him introduce himself. Hi everyone everybody. My name is Ajay Kamlakaran. I'm a writer based in Bombay, India. Yes, I still call it Bombay and not Mumbai. <laughs> uh the new name where well, it's not so new anymore. I was actually born in Bombay, raised in the United States in New York City and made in Russia. So I say made in Russia because I've spent uh, most of my adult life living in and out of Russia and my first uh, work of fiction Globe Trotting for Love and other stories from Sakhalin Island was published in 2017. What's really special about the book is that it was written right here in Sri Lanka in Mount Lavinia and it's in many senses a, a Sri Lankan book more than it is an Indian book. And like Anton Chekhov who incidentally lived uh, on Sakhalin Island who uh, yeah he actually lived on Sakhalin Island uh, and called the place hell he called Sri Lanka Ceylon at that time as paradise on earth so i tend to agree with uh, anton chekhov that uh, ceylon and sri lanka is paradise for me and i keep coming here very often so this is not your first time here no i i think it's cross 20 <laughs> right so what 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 attracts you what brings you here all this yeah. well it's a great degree of comfort that i feel in this country and i feel i blend in really well and even culturally i feel that i don't uh, i just i can be myself here and just uh, be part of the crowd and sri lanka has such an open society and people are so welcoming and if if you really want to be sri lankan and you're not uh, well they make you feel that you are so it's it feels like uh, that i'm coming home and sometimes i get the feeling that i was born uh, on the wrong side of the park straight could you uh, just uh, talk us through your writing career briefly and your career as a journalist over the years right now uh, i have a, a background in finance and banking and this is something in in our part of the world in south asia at least in uh, i would say a generation back your your parents would persuade you to to pursue a profession that they think is best for you and i when i wanted to actually be a writer or a journalist uh, my dad would tell me that journalists are no, nothing but a bunch of drunks who sit in the in the press club all day and do nothing constructive with life he may not have been too far off with uh, this evaluation when it comes to yeah, some people yeah <laughs> and uh, then i said well i want to be a writer and he said well writing is a hobby it's not a profession you can't live off it and so i had a background in finance and it's something that i really did not enjoy and i chose really early on in my 20s to not do this and to just get into journalism i started learning languages and tried to get some assignments in different countries and uh this really worked for me because i i moved to sakhalin in 2003 the idea was very simple to with a friend of mine we wanted to just travel across russia kamchatka siberia see the whole country and a student visa would give me access uh long term access to a country that a tourist visa or a visitors visa doesn't give so i enrolled in university and at the same time i was freelancing for international publications and because there was an oil boom a newspaper to cater to uh, the oil expats you know was started at that time so it was just a uh, serendipity basically circumstances and situations came together at that time 
that really led uh, what, where one thing led to another and this uh, and I did manage to see a, a lot of Russia but these things came together and helped me in such a way and by 2007 when I'd had enough of living in the end of the world a uh, place that's so isolated uh, from the rest of the world I, I decided I moved to Moscow uh, and I worked for Reuters as a, a, initially I was a stringer for them and the a stringer is basically a freelance correspondent uh, for them in the Russian Far East and uh, I was attached to the Moscow newsroom and after that I joined full-time um, I worked for Reuters I was responsible for the the, the New York newsroom, the, fi the financial news coverage, gets shifted to Bangalore at night. So I was responsible for shifting those operations to Bangalore because uh, if somebody, you, you, you have someone going to work in Bangalore at 8.30 in the morning when it's 11 p.m. In, in New York. So the, the guy in Bangalore is fresh. If he's familiar with the U.S. financial markets and knows what's going on, he can handle that equities file unless it's an emergency. And the reporters in the U.S. can sleep. So it was, it was a great arrangement which suited um, everybody. So I had colleagues who'd work along with the New York newsroom from 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. And here I was working from 8.30 to 5.30 and enjoying daylight in Bangalore. Uh, and after, I mean, I, after I worked for Reuters, I also worked for a, briefly for a publication called Die Presse, uh, it, based in Vienna. And um, after, basically, I missed Russia a lot. I really wanted to be associated with that country again. And then there was this, uh, this publication called Russia Beyond the Headlines. It's now called Russia Beyond. And the aim, the, the, initially the, the idea behind this publication was to give the Russian side of the story because uh, unfortunately when Western publications report on Russia, they never, many of them don't give the, the opportunity for the Russian side to respond. So it's all about putting their own point of view. And now, of course, it's a, a publication that's just based on, that, that just wants to promote Russian culture and in the best way it can using technology. But when I was there, one of the main aims was uh, to clear, in India and in most parts of South Asia, people still in 2000 Eleven, twelve thought Russia is the land of communism, mafia, uh, and uh, bread lines. People still believe that, even though those things were long gone. And the idea was to really show what Russia is about, and, and that helped. So I split my time between Moscow and Bombay uh, during those years. And uh, it, was a, it was a great opportunity for me to see European Russia and to be a part of all that, because... My, my Russian experience before that was restricted to the Far East, which is still my favorite part of the country. And I think uh, people from Sri Lanka would really love going to, would enjoy the Russian Far East more than they would Central European Russia, because that's something that's done. And I, I see people here have this great sense of a spirit of exploration. They want to visit from my experiences within South Asia, the, I think the most curious people in our part of the world are actually Sri Lankans. So they would really enjoy visiting those parts uh, of Russia where, you know, you'd be a novelty, right? If somebody looks at you and they wouldn't be able to tell where you're from. And if you say Sri Lanka, they'll say, oh, oh my God, wow, that's the land of great tea and elephants. And uh, this is something that I would, I would really recommend more people do uh, from from this country. 
um in in your experience ajay how propagandistic have uh, has uh, russian journalism been lately especially see well there's there're actually two uh, sides to this first of all russian propaganda is mainly intended for a very domestic audience so if it in the russian language if you watch uh, russian tv which i don't uh, very often but uh, you know they they try and russia primarily is more concerned with what uh, its own citizens think of the government so there's a lot of internal propaganda on television uh, and there there have been certain deaths uh, of journalists but many of these cases have been very sketchy and they're not it looks like uh, the, the whole aim is uh, w- to basically make it look like the government was responsible and in some cases i think they were but they weren't always um, but the whole problem is if the russian government doesn't want people to know something through the press they don't need to kill a journalist they can just contact advertisers and tell them that okay um you guys are going to have uh, tax troubles or some other problems from us and they put pressure on the editors and on the publications uh, to not um, give out certain information that they don't want so the the danger the real danger for journalists uh, i know i'm straying off topic here but the real danger is not getting shot but but losing your job and not uh, you know being unemployable now internationally uh there are certain russian um there, there's an outlet called russia today rt which uh essentially has taken up the role of the fox news uh for russia so if there's a shooting um at burger king where somebody was annoyed that uh they were getting poor service then the headline will be anarchy in philadelphia so but i think that uh unfortunately because see these these outlets are actually um they've been created in response to what uh, the western media has been doing for a very long time so the, the point is for example when um the united states wanted to invade iraq in 2003 even the new york times published uh, an article claiming that weapons of mass destruction exist nobody questioned their narrative because you believe the new york times their credibility is unquestionable but there've been several incidents where numbers have been exaggerated there's been a lot for example when clinton bombed um, serbia in uh, 1999 and uh, the, the whole initially they said 200,000 kosovars were exterminated by the genocidal serbs that number as it that number was used in publications like the economist and stuff and you know within a few weeks that came down to 20,000 then it came down to a few thousand and uh the point is that russian propaganda is in direct response to the west now in in certain areas where you have incredibly conflicting narratives it's very difficult to know who to believe for example when the MH17 Malaysia Airlines flight was shot down over Don, uh, Donetsk in rebel controlled territory in Ukraine the point is the, the Russians insisted that the Ukrainians did it uh, western countries immediately blame Russia in fact within 15 minutes of um, the the plane being shot down you immediately had reports saying that a BUK system was used 
And uh, the point is that it's very difficult to, the, very few people know the truth of that. I don't know the truth, and I don't know what to believe from this, simply because you, you, you have these narratives. I've, the United States has satellite data and imagery of everything that happens in the world. If they had the kind of evidence that would have really nailed those rebels, they would have presented it to the international community, but they haven't been able to do that. Uh, as for the Russian government, they put up this ridiculous news brief uh, about what happened to, to the aircraft using photographs. But what was really funny was uh, they showed uh, that MH17 was a Boeing 777. And the images they showed was of a Malaysia Airlines 767. And, uh, you know, people were able to call that out. So some Russian people themselves wrote, Dear Russian uh, TV channel one, when, when you're actually indulging in um, propaganda and disinformation, can you at least try and be a little more careful when you <laughs> do this? But yes, this exists, but like I said, it's, it's reactionary to what happens uh, in, in the West because you also have, uh, see for example, right now, this whole thing about r Russian collusion in the, in the US uh, uh, electoral process. I find that really funny because the United States has interfered everywhere and continues to do it. And then you, you, you know, you, they act like that's a crime against humanity when you've actually, you know, what happened to Allende in Chile? This was a case of a coup, you know, disposing of a democratically elected prime minister to install Pinochet. And this is just one tiny example. The United, when the, when uh, Bill Clinton in uh, 1993 actually supported Boris Yeltsin, uh, who undermined democracy in Russia, and uh, they helped Boris Yeltsin win the election after the, you know, the, when the parliament, uh, there's an incident, I won't get too much into this, but the point is the US press was praising American foreign policy for getting their man Yeltsin into power, back into power in Moscow. And uh, it, the point is that you see the way, you know, where we're heading here. So the fact that you can blame them for something, but the propaganda uh, against Russia is very strong and sometimes they feel the only way uh, is to have uh, a lot of counter propaganda. And today I read an article um, somewhere which said that the Black Lives Matter movement is being sponsored by the Russians. I mean, I, I find certain things really hysterical, for example, they say, Putin sponsored Le Pen in France, but he's also backing Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. So you're supporting one left-leaning person, one ultra-right, and they say his whole aim is to, is to dismantle the EU. So he's just playing around with the democratic processes. But unfortunately, it's so difficult, and being in, an insider, a journalist, it's really difficult to understand what's true and what isn't. I mean, two, a couple of weeks ago, The Guardian published an article which said that uh, one of Trump's uh, key strategists actually met Julian Assange inside the Ecuadorian embassy. It was a completely false report, and The Guardian has been completely called out on all this, and they have not been able, they, they haven't commented on this. And that, that particular journalist has been caught for plagiarizing, and it, it just goes on and on. What, what I'm trying to say is that that was a, another hit job, like the New York Times uh, weapons of mass destruction. And I'm not a fan of Trump. And, you know, I understand for Putin to have someone like that in Washington, it, it's, a, it's, it's a PR victory for him. 
because for years Putin was the the global bad guy according to the way people looked at things and you have somebody who embarrasses the US on a day in day out basis so there may be some you know he benefits from it what I'm but what I'm trying to say is unfortunately because newspapers and publications worldwide have pushed agendas some of them driven by government some of them driven purely by the interests of advertisers it's really difficult to have an objective opinion of what's what because the you don't know where what is propaganda and uh, what what isn't and there's there's a lot of it surrounding many incidents in in the world right now so it's it's really tough but to you know but i definitely believe that uh, russia does indulge in in global propaganda as well cool um you mentioned almost in passing earlier that uh, you prefer to call mumbai bombay uh what's up with that okay well this is a, a dispute that goes back to a long time now you know be, historians have claimed that mumbai was the original name and that the british couldn't pronounce it and uh and then there's some who claim that the first people when the portuguese came to bombay they called it bombaia and when it was gifted as dowry to the british the british changed bombaia to bombay now the the reason why i i stick to the the name bombay is because bombay is actually it's more than a city it it it's a it's a it's a concept it's uh, it represents india's most uh, western oriented city india's most liberal city it's a place where people from conservative parts of india came uh and where they could live liberal lifestyles and keep you know an eye on the west and this is a city where in you know in the 1960s duke ellington jazz legend performed in bombay so this was a city that was completely in the global map at that time a very international city frank sinatra actually sang the song come fly with me he mentions there's a bar in far off bombay it was a very vogue city even during the time of the the hippie trail because they would once they actually came overland from europe into india they would come to bombay now what happened was the renaming of bombay was a watershed moment in modern indian history because we we you know what from a country that should that has always absorbed the best influences from abroad if we're moving inward and becoming more provincial and you know this is a kind of subnationalism because at the same time you're saying okay mumbai belongs to the marathi speaking people and it's our city it belongs to us if you don't want to speak uh, marathi or if you don't want to call it uh, mumbai then get out and what what it did was it set off a domino rally because it went uh, the, the next city madras was renamed chennai and you know i'm very fond of uh, tamil culture and tamil people but when they speak to somebody in english they refer to madras as chennai and they they very they emphasize this and when they talk to each other in tamil because i understand tamil they refer to it as madras so what i'm trying to say is this and then kolkata calcutta was renamed to kolkata and this is such a waste of money and you know i i find this uh, repugnant simply because what are you trying to do you're you're wasting money you're distracting the masses you're pondering to a set of people and saying okay and you're you're creating i believe these are steps to the balkanization of india and people don't take this seriously enough but so many places have been renamed 
Uh, and it's funny because, okay, if people who are Marathi speakers want to call it Mumbai, they're free to do it. China, call, no Chinese person calls their country China when they speak in Chinese. They call it Zhongguo, and which is fine. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Russians refer to Russia as Russia, and in English it's Russia. So if you suddenly, tomorrow, if uh, Russia was renamed Russia, nobody would know what it is. So the, the point is when you try and... In, in India, this, the, there is a, a great danger of balkanization. And uh, these kind of measures do this. And you can tell a lot about a person depending on, uh, you know, by what they call Bombay, whether they call it Mumbai or Bombay. And you can tell because there's that element because essentially Bombay is a liberal city. It belongs to the liberals. It always has been. And we've had mass migration from the hinterland uh, of different parts of India. And these conservative people have moved in, and now they form the majority. But, uh, and this majoritarianism that this represents, it, it, that's what Mumbai is to me. And, um, you know, I want, I want Bombay and all of India to be uh, international. I want the best brains in the world to come to India. Uh, I want um, it, to, it to be a place that's a real hub of global activity. I don't want it to turn into some sort of inward-looking, um, provincial, uh, my city to be inward looking and provincial, or my country to be, okay, we don't need anybody, and you know, moving inward. I, d I don't think the future lies in that. I, I'm an internationalist, so for me, th that's why I call my city what I do. Uh, I see your point about uh, Mumbai, I'm going to call it Mumbai, being, right. uh, being a, a liberal hub. Right. Uh, but um, does that mean, does that mean it needs to cling to what is essentially a colonial hangover because of that is how, how do you know it's a colonial hangover because like I said the name itself comes from Bombay and yeah. Bombay and the point is you have to understand but it's an anglicized word right it's a anglicized from Portuguese okay not from Marathi right that's the first thing the, the second thing is see the Bombay as a city itself was was a creation of the British you had a few fishermen living off the creeks and, uh, and you know, off the mainland and stuff like that. But this, what, this is just another village. So the, what this does with, the, with this name Mumbai, it says it belongs to, it doesn't say it belongs to Indians. It says it belongs to this Marathi-speaking community. And uh, that, that is where I have a problem. See, I mean, for example, what is a colonial hangover? I'll tell you is there's a city called Kanpur. I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, it was called Kanpur, C-A-W-N-P-O-R-E. I mean, nobody ever referred to it as Kanpur. So right after independence, it was renamed to Kanpur because that's what everybody called it. And that's what it is. It's Kanpur. But uh, places like Calcutta, places like Bombay, uh, no, I, I don't think it's, it's really a colonial uh, legacy to do this. And like I said, we, India should tread the path of cosmopolitanism. And, you know, you achieve nothing by renaming. The renaming spree has not stopped. There's a city called Allahabad, which has been renamed to Prayagraj. And this is a country where states are competing to construct the, the tallest statues in the world. You have the tallest statue in the world in Gujarat. So in Uttar Pradesh, you have um, a demagogue who wants to construct a statue of uh, Rama from the Ramayana, Lord Ram and make that taller. And we have in Maharashtra, off the, the, basically off Bombay's Marine Drive, 
uh, a statue coming up which wants to be taller than both of these. But the problem is the Sardar Patel statue in Gujarat has already been built, completely by the Chinese, by the way. Uh, and you have these two uh, states that are waiting to see the, the architectural plan and to decide who gets the taller statue. I mean, what, what are we doing? <laughs> I, I find this ridiculous. See, the, we don't need chauvinistic, regionalistic, nationalistic pride. I don't think that's, that's a must because nationalism essentially stands against, okay, I'm an Indian, I'm better than a Pakistani or, or, or Chinese person. And these are acts of chauvinism. We don't, we, we don't need to do this. And, and the basic point is I'm not a fan of the British Empire. I read Shashi Tharoor's book and even before then, I would recommend anybody who thinks the British were a bunch of benevolent people civilizing the world should just read George Orwell's um, Burmese Days. That is an absolutely brilliant book. And you, you'd understand, it, he, he does it in a way that nobody else ha has done it since or before. So I'm not a fan of the British Empire, but at the same time, we can't forget that they were here. We can't forget, you know, you can't just, uh, you renamed the uh, Victoria Terminus into Chhatrapati Shivaji Terminus. And you, you, you know, the, the point is, you, you can't pretend that the, the British weren't here in Sri Lanka or, or, or in India. They were there, it's a part of history, and we need to reconcile ourselves to the fact that this happened, and it's a part of our history, and it, it's all right. I mean, none, it's, it's something that just happened. Reconcile yourself to it. But, but to try and um, pretend that this didn't happen, and I mean, I, I find this really ironic because the same people who want to remove every vestige of uh, the empire in, in South Asia are the same people who, who ensure that their kids uh, study in the UK, study in another Commonwealth uh, Anglo-Saxon majority society. And, you know, so, so basically what's, they don't follow what's good for the goose, good for the gander. No, it's, it's all about, okay, you got, in, in my country, in India, for example, uh, you, you won't find a single top-level bureaucrat whose kids don't study or, or don't live or have lived in, in a Western country. So the point is they don't believe in the system themselves and uh, they make sure that their, their kids have uh, security, etc., out, out west. And at the same time, they're lording over, uh, you know, it, it seems to me that colonialism and the legacy of the empire, it's, it's still prevalent. Avlok Road is now known as Sri Sadhananda, uh, sorry, Sri uh, Sambuddhata Janti Mahavata. Oh, is it? Which is, yeah, which is quite a mouthful. Right. But still, like, uh, I mean, I don't really think people use it. Yeah. Do they? I mean, when I refer to it, but I, I refer to it as Havelock <laughs> Road. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that we're pro-British. It, it just, you yeah. know, this is the name that, uh, that, that was given. And when, when a British guy comes to India and says, oh, we built the city, I said, yes, using slave labor. Uh, what they did was the, the Marathi people and the others who built Bombay, who built those beautiful uh, neo-Gothic ensemble, and, which is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site, along with the Art Deco buildings, uh, it was basic. What what would they give these people who were doing the labor? They would give them bat. That's a Marathi word for rice, bat, which the British turned into bat. Which okay. you use bat here as well. Yeah. And that's what they'd be given a bowl of bat uh, every night for this. 
So we, we know the legacy, but that doesn't mean that, you know, at the end of the day, Victoria Terminus is the world's most beautiful railway station. Anybody who visits Bombay falls in love with that railway station. They, they, they think that the, this neo-Gothic masterpiece is it's something to, you celebrate it. It's there right now. And I don't, you know, the, the whole idea of going to this and saying, yeah, let's just, the Prince of Wales Museum, was renamed to again Chhatrapati Shivaji. I mean, Shivaji was a was a great king, but you do his own legacy a disservice by renaming everything after him: the airports, a railway station, now the statue. And if if you read about the history of this man, he was actually his name is being used misused in 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 such a way uh, in in India, and. Um, I don't think I don't think we've come to terms with our colonial legacy anywhere in South Asia. No, I, I actually agree with you that it's not worth the time. Right, and, and the money. Yeah, because you know when you rename something, uh, so much money is spent on this. You have to change boards, at least with official, um, you know, like official publications, and you have to change street signs and and the process to get this through and the bureaucratic work involved. I mean, the, in India, once they used uh, renaming to score a political point. In, uh, in the 1960s, the, the U.S. consulate in Calcutta is uh, it's actually in Ho Chi Minh Sarani, Ho Chi Minh Street. So when the Vietnam War was going on, the communist government in West Bengal, to spite the Americans, uh, renamed uh, the, the street to Ho Chi Minh Sarani. So when the U.S., they have no choice, but their visiting cards, their stationery, their letterheads. The Consul General of the United States of America, Ho Chi Minh Sarani. So, you know, when you want to, uh, to, to prove a point like that, again, it's petty, I think. But that really, you know, really, because America and India really have not been the best of friends. Things are looking good now, but the, the, the point is, you, you, you know, I, I just don't see the necessity to do this. And at the end of the day, we we have grievances from the colonial period. We haven't completely come to terms with uh, what what has happened, especially in India. And but you know it's so easy. Seventy years after independence, blame the Brits. It's uh, it's Britain's fault. I mean, there's a joke now that anytime something goes wrong, India's Prime Minister Modi blames Nehru. So the, India's first Prime Minister, who's really well respected here as well in Sri Lanka, as I've come to learn. And just blame him. And I, and I say, wow. I mean, Nehru was such a great man. For the first 17 years of Indian independence, he was a prime minister of India. And um, more than five decades after his death, he still doesn't allow the government of India to work. So, you know, the, the whole idea of blame, it's somebody's fault. If we don't live in the present moment and we don't look at how we can uh, solve relevant it, it's very simple you distract somebody rename the havelock to something uh you know rename hungerford street i don't know if you have one here but in calcutta there's a hungerford street and that that was a by no most people don't know who this man was but he was responsible for shooting uh, the indian mutineers in 1857 people don't know this but what i'm trying to say is this is just you know it's a distraction it's a waste of money and it doesn't improve uh, you live in the Havelock, and I don't think the traffic uh, situation has improved after the renaming. Yeah, I I, I remember like there was a uh, a bit of an outcry regarding Torrington. Independence Square used to be called Torrington, Torrington Square, yeah. Torrington yeah. Avenue, and uh, Torrington was the guy who shot uh, who killed Meera uh, Purana. Yeah. 
so people were not very happy with that and now now i don't think i mean p- people do still value the word torrington but uh, i i remember a couple of years back there was this movement to you know not use the word torrington and use independence square i think these things change with time right i mean when like i said I, 10 years ago if you if you said mumbai somewhere at an airport they'd be like oh bombay and now if i say i'm going to bombay uh, an airport security and they're like they say they oh you mean mumbai i've had this in korea but in sri lanka people still thanks to the legacy of bombay sweets people still call it bombay and because of bollywood which no one's going to call mollywood uh they they still use the term bombay very widely here and what's really funny is the alliance française uh, the french cultural center in in bombay they call themselves alliance française de bombay the it um, when the brits issue visas they still say issued by the consulate in bombay no one's going to say that okay i refuse to go to great britain because you refuse to call my city mumbai i i challenge someone to do that when uh, when choosing names uh, is there a, is there a tendency to favor names that are i suppose more majoritarian heritage it's it's unfortunately the trend right now which is why i really like what france did when they housed people from slums into uh, residential blocks with mainly with algerians and moroccans and stuff they named uh, neighborhoods after flowers acacia frangipani and <laughs> yeah, very nice sounding names although the neighborhoods weren't that nice but something like that is is much better uh and to an exe for example a lot of the names here, i'm sorry to interrupt a lot of the names here are very singular buddhist in character right right a lot of the new names sure i mean look majoritarianism is a is a trend uh, everywhere um, unfortunately populism is really at its peak right now and the world is swung uh, heavily towards the right so that that is that is definitely a, a problem but i think with names of places see for a long time certain places have had a particular name for example in bombay you have an elphinstone road it was renamed you know the 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 railway station was re- the on the suburban railway that stop was renamed to prabhadevi and that makes more sense because you take a taxi you're actually going to a place called prabhadevi and elphinston road is, is you know it it's nobody knows it as that even though that name has existed for a long time so naming it prabhadevi is is actually a good step because it's an indication of where the place is if you're doing something at least do something to make it easier for somebody but by you know in india we have the we have a problem of so many airports schemes uh, bridges named after the gandhi dynasty rajiv gandhi this indra gandhi that and you know of course it's it's a great political tool to do this because you when you keep saying the rajiv gandhi airport or the indra gandhi airport or etc it's it you know because the dynasty continues to dominate uh, that party which is now in the opposition what you're doing is you're giving away you know free publicity t- to them so but the point is look at if you're going to rename something if you absolutely have to do it then look at convenience but the the idea of this this majoritarianism i i think it's dangerous because people say oh for example now uh, there's a movement uh, in india to to try and get everybody to speak hindi it's not working it's failing and they say oh but 
you know, majority rules. If you don't want to speak Hindi, go to Pakistan. And I tell people that, you know, I'm from Bombay. We speak Marathi and we speak, and my native language is Malayalam from Kerala. And I tell people nobody speaks Marathi or Malayalam uh, in Pakistan, whereas Hindi and Urdu are basically the same language. One is Sanskritized, the other is Persianized. So if anybody w would be more comfortable across the border, it would be a Hindi speaker. <laughs> Not, uh, you know, uh, Sala Madrasi as they call South Indians. Uh, it, it, so the, the point is majoritarianism is extremely dangerous and the subcontinent was divided because of this. It was a political problem. It wasn't a case of one community um, being inflexible and the other going out of it. That's, the re the, that's what we're taught. But if you really read deeply into this, so majoritarianism is extremely dangerous, but, um, and, and I think that it has to be nipped in the bud. And honestly, if somebody, I, if, okay, the Havelock had a social worker who did something to help uh, people, you know, fine, name it, re, re, if you really essentially have to do it, rename it after that person. But if you're doing it with uh, the intention of intimidating minorities, then I don't think it's a good idea. Because these are the things that really lead to rebellion at, at some point or the other. They're small things, but it's, it's little things that lead up to something bigger. So let's, let's talk about talk a little about your book, Ajay. I've read the book and I liked it. And you know this because I left a review of it as well. And uh, full disclosure, I haven't read the book. So I'm kind of like going in blind here. You should. So I'm going to let Tamara carry this basically. Right. So w what I what I noticed was uh, there th this is a collection of short stories from Sakhalin Island. And what I noticed was all these stories had uh, like they have a lot of emotion in them. These people are going through something uh, like it, it, sometimes it, it's uh, it's good times or bad times, but they are dealing with something uh, that's very uh, emotionally uh, heavy, I think. So what brought you to write something like this what you you had a wealth of experience as a as a journalist what brought you to write something like a, a collection of short stories Sakhalin island is an extremely unique place it uh, is just north of japan and it takes 9 hours uh, <laughs> to fly from moscow to sakhalin so in one country of course russia has 11 time zones so it's a really big country sakhalin has been a part of Russia since the 18th century, but there was a lot of Japanese influence. And the island uh, is really at a crossroad of uh, Asia and Russia. So it's right there in the Pacific Rim, but it's a place with the predominantly European culture. And the island was essentially isolated uh, from the rest. Of, it's been isolated for a long time, but from uh, 1945 till the collapse of the Soviet Union, no foreigners or non-residents of Sakhalin were allowed to, to visit the island. If you were a Soviet citizen, you could get special permission. And if you were a foreigner, it was basically off limits, no matter what. And what happened, so people basically, generations there had no interactions with uh, any non-Soviet citizen. And then in, when the Soviet Union collapsed, there was oil and gas exploration there. So suddenly this island transformed 
into a place which had no foreigners to having the most number of foreigners after Moscow and St. Petersburg in Russia. So it was a cultural shock for both the people, the, the inhabitants of the island, and um, the foreigners who came and who've had no experience with Russia. And essentially, I lived in Sakhalin between 2003 and seven, where I was the editor of a newspaper called the Sakhalin Times. What I left Sakhalin in 2007, and uh, I went back for the first time in 2013. So there was a, a big gap. And what I noticed was when I lived there, this was a place that was buzzing with activity, uh, a, a new kind of life with expats and Russians mingling. And by 2013, the large expat presence uh, was no longer there. The oil and gas projects were on stream. So you didn't need foreigners out there anymore. And the place completely changed. And the idea behind writing this book was, I lived there during really interesting times. And I wanted to fictionalize those times and uh, recreate, chronicle them in a, so that people who go there would know what this place actually was. It's now, uh, after I wrote the book, basically the place underwent another uh, you know, phase in development. So it's really a very beautiful place now. And, but at the same time, the excitement, the buzz, and uh, being some sort of a global crossroad full of an international place, uh, that's gone. So the idea was so that people who visit now will also have an idea of what it was. And those between 2000 and 2010, when so many expats and foreigners lived on the island, those were the most interesting days in the history of this island because if you look at the isolation, <laughs> geographical isolation, you're about an, an hour away from the international dateline. And then suddenly a place like that has Brits, Dutch, Indians, Americans, Japanese, Koreans, Filipinos, and uh, it really turned into uh, something that was really special at that point of time. So I wanted to write this book to just so that people could, you know, revisit that magic even by not being there at that time. Right. Tell us a little bit about the stories. Like, what kind of characters can we find here? Well, you've got all kinds of characters. Uh, it, Essentially, the characters reflect the times that the book was set in. And uh, many parts of, see, Russia in the early 2000s was just recovering from the collapse of the Soviet Union and the 1998 financial crisis. So a lot of people, see, you had, you had immigrants there from places like Armenia who came to do the kind of jobs that the, the Russians who were newly becoming wealthy wouldn't do. You had... Russian girls from small parts of the country who uh, looked at finding a foreign husband. <laughs> and I don't want to give away too much, but uh, the characters essentially, the, I mean, these are people basically from completely diverse backgrounds who ended up just living in one common space. And the, it, it reflects that. It also reflects the, the impact of uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union on the average person because not everybody could work for an oil and gas company or a company that serviced them. And so how life changed for people and what they had to deal with. I tried to look at that. 
the the impact of both the oil boom and the the collapse of the Soviet Union and how a, a society transforms itself from being completely socialist to going to the other extreme where there there's no social security net of any kind and these characters reflect those times basically right and uh, are these characters based on people real people that you met or real events certain events in, in a small scale were were real i mean there's one story about uh, a lady who wants to kill her cheating husband uh, her alcoholic husband and there was one particular it, i got the idea for the story because one summer evening i was it was quite late it was around midnight i was fast asleep and i heard somebody screaming get out of the car get out of the car and if this was new york i could say hey lady shut up but being the only foreigner in my building uh if if i if I, i could speak russian at that time obviously but if i said something from my accent she'd know that okay it's the foreigner who's asking me to shut up so i tried saying shh a few times and that didn't work and then i woke up and went to my balcony to see what was going on and i saw this inc- this larger than life drunk man who was uh, not being he was too drunk to get out of a taxi and i watched the whole incident that's described uh, in the book about how the the guy falls on grass and the woman gets her son to come out and they take him off like he's uh, you know somebody who's war wounded <laughs> and uh, so there were incidents that took place and there were cultural situations that i did witness things that i read about in newspapers so a lot of this is based on those kind of incidents but at the same time i had um, an ex-girlfriend uh, threatened to sue me uh for defamation she claimed that in one of the stories that i've characterized her and that uh, that she she'll take me to court because it's libel it's defamation and what was really funny was a common friend told her that if you do this you'll make him famous in russia and people will actually believe that that person is you so you you'll spoil your own reputation so i wouldn't advise it so right. she so, so she, that never happened Well yeah so she backed off and she said she's going to write a book about a stupid indian guy who moved all the way from bombay and who was a complete loser and a few adjectives and uh, it was funny because even something like that would also be good publicity for me so i don't think i could lose in this situation but of course the story wasn't about her so was this character actually a caricature of this ex or no she no of not course not absolutely not Okay so you mentioned that you you came to Sri Lanka to write this book uh was it because you found more peace here or absolutely <laughs> i mean the the point is that what i also really like about sri lanka see i'm a morning person right so when i stayed in mount lavinia i would uh get up around 4 o'clock in the morning and just run uh, straight to the beach and take a sea bath or an ocean bath and by the time i'm while i'm actually in the water i could hear the the prayers from uh, buddhist temples which start a little later than that of course and you know at, at colombo and many parts of sri lanka you know the the people wake up early things the activity start in candy it's even earlier and so for me you know i was really in tune with this i'm f- really fresh in the mornings uh so the peace is was a, was a big factor of course because 
You know, Colombo is far more peaceful than any of the big cities uh, in our region. And, um, and also, Mount Lavinia's beach, I mean, frankly, it is one of the best inner city beaches in the world. It's spotlessly clean. The water is clean enough to swim in. And you go there at 7.30 on a Monday, you'll, chances are you'll be one of five people there. Try doing that in, uh, in Juhu or in Karachi or uh, in uh, you know, Cox's Bazaar. It's, that's, it's next to impossible. So the peace definitely you know, was, was, was the, the most important factor. But also if you go away somewhere else, you push yourself because you're there for a limited time. I can't just come and stay here permanently like an Indian citizen can do in Nepal, for example. So when you come here and you're here for a limited time, uh, the finance background kind of pushes me to focus on deadlines. And, and it, so this having peace and at the same time knowing that I'm only here for a limited period of time tends to, tend to, motiv tends to motivate me more. So, and I've written a novella, which I hope it sees the light of day uh, in, uh, you know, in September of 2019. And again, that book was written here. It was written in Kote, a place which is even, because in Mount Lavinia on weekends, it turns into party, uh, party zone and uh, there's no peace and quiet anymore. But Kote is more uh, conservative and it's quiet all the time. So I found this, I found a beautiful annex there with uh, the really lovely garden and that kind of helped me as well. I find peace here in Sri Lanka and it's much easier for me to write when I'm here. Right. So there could be people who uh, who have entertained the thought of writing their own books or maybe getting into writing or, or journalism or whatever. So for their benefit, let's maybe talk a little bit about your writing process, how you approach writing. Uh, and this, uh, the, the first book that you wrote, Globetrotting for Love was a collection of short stories. Uh, why did you go for a collection of short stories as opposed to something else, maybe a novel? It, it's simply because these short stories reflected a whole series of parallel lives that were, uh, that you could witness in Sakhalin at that point of time. And a lot of times these worlds didn't interact. When you write a longer story or a novel, they have to be linked all together in some way. And here these stories are just not connected, but they're happening at the same time. I mean, people who go uh, to a nightclub and, you know, check out the barmaid there, they, they have no idea that, okay, maybe my colleague is probably interested in this woman and they're seeing each other outside. It was a small town. But, you know, there was nothing that could really link all of this together. So that was the reason, because these were all stories that needed to be told which is why I chose uh, short stories as a genre. Uh, as for novels, I mean, the, if, you, if you're going to get into writing, honestly, worldwide, novels are the preferred genre because people really want something that'll keep them gripped for a long time. And this is what I hear in the publishing world, that uh, novels do better than novellas and short stories. So, like, like you said, I mean, it's, these stories are based on the same place, the same island, but right. they're different stories. So, how do you write them? Do you write all of them at a stretch or do you write one and go back and edit it? What's the process? See, it, it really depends because uh, the way, uh, I like what Ernest Hemingway said, all you t to write all you need uh, is to get a typewriter and bleed. <laughs> so, it, it just comes out of, it depends on 
stories change. See, for example, I wrote a manuscript here and I passed it on to f uh, five people who read a lot. And they told me that, you know, I'm mixing genres a little bit, certain stories could be better in certain ways, certain things don't make sense. So these people were able to assist me and help me make these stories better. And then also, you also have the opinion of the publishing house and their editors. Now you notice some stories ended abruptly uh, that also might have had, may have had something to do with the fact that um, publishing houses look to save on paper and space and optimize these things. So then there are unfortunate cuts in these kind of things. So it, the whole process is some, some people can just sit and write stories and I know of people who've actually written novels, uh, you know, 400 page novel in, in 15 days doing nothing else nonstop. But a lot of it, stories change because it's fiction. You have freedom to just imagine, uh, for example, with this guy who I mentioned who was drunk and fell on the grass. I just imagined uh, that, okay, this man must have met his wife at one particular point. I. I just imagine how they would have met, how their lives were when everything was going right in the Soviet Union before the Brezhnev era and how things went south after that or during that. So, you know, you sit and you visualize. And, and for me, for example, since I was writing this book here in Sri Lanka, so when I wrote about this woman who wants to kill her husband, she initially pondered over killing herself as well. Uh, and... Um, she, I meant there's a reference to cyanide and the Tamil tigers. So there's always this, your surroundings also influence that. And you, you know, as a, as a mark of gratitude, I wanted to just have something there um, where there's some Sri Lanka mentioned because it's a country that's off, often overlooked being small. And so stories develop over, sometimes you can just, the, you, you feel inspired to just write something uh, and uh, sometimes you, you need time, it needs many changes and stuff like that. But you know, it, it's always good to have a, a set of you know, people whose opinions you value. And for me, I mentioned in the acknowledgements about one Roberto Bertolaccio, he's my Italian professor, and he's, I mean, he's read way more than people can in several lifetimes. And he pointed out, he said that, okay, if this is gonna be an international book where people are, more demanding then you need changes and I was very fortunate that this panel of people who don't know each other one person from Russia one person from Italy one person from Sweden you know they had common uh, views on what needs to change so that that made things a, a lot easier so you always seek feedback that gives you uh, a much better shot of course there are people who believe that everything they write is just superb, it doesn't need any feedback. You're writing for yourself at the end of the day. So you may just want to feel, no, but for me, I always think, how do I really you know, entertain? The, the whole idea is to entertain. People talk about light reading and writing simple text, but that itself is a skill. You know, Maya Angelou, the great American writer who passed away a few years ago, spoke about that. She said that it takes tremendous effort to, to be on the same page with the reader where you, um, and I think the greatest writers, Marquez, um, Th Thomas Hardy, th these are people who, their texts are simple, they're easy to read. 
when you write something which is when you t- many people and i've noticed this is a mistake that a lot of people do when they write books they want to show off their um, convent school education or their university where they studied and see how many journalists on twitter with rather unimpressive portfolios will put alumni, alumnus of columbia journ at the rate of columbia journ to show off that oh yeah i studied in in in, in columbia as though, as though that, is, that itself is an achievement that puts them apart from others. So a lot of people when they write, I, I firmly believe that a person shouldn't have to open a dictionary every five minutes when they read something that I write. They shouldn't need a uh, master's in literature to find hidden meanings in, in what I write. And I think journalists make the best writers. I mean, I know this is a very controversial statement to make, but Marques, Hemingway, there was a great Swedish writer called Stig Dagerman. I re- highly recommend his books. He was also a journalist. So what happens is when you're a journalist, you write for the masses. When you do that, you know what you understand. Your, I think journalists understand the readers much better. And when you do that, I, I'm not taking away anything from people who write fancy, you know, use f- fancy language and stuff. But the whole idea is at the end of the day, you, you know, of course, stories will be subject to interpretation. For example, there's a story in this book called In the Mean Streets of Yuzhno-Sakhalinsk. And this was a caricature of one of my best friends. And he knows it, and he had a good laugh, and he said, what have you done to me? And, uh, <laughs> but the, the, the point is that even though he felt it was, unfl- it was very unflattering, a lot of people who read that story were like, could this possibly be a real guy? And um, they found this character very attractive. So I told him, look, since it's an open secret about this, would you like to do a Facebook live session with me or a video where we can do this? And he gladly did it. And then people who liked the story said, oh, wow, this guy's way hotter than you describe him uh, in your book. So everybody was happy at the end of the day. But I mean, the point I'm trying to make here is simply that when you write at a particular level that people can understand you and they don't have to... most people, when, when do most people read before going to bed? So if you read something that's really heavy and, you know, when there are double, triple meanings all thrown into every sentence that you write, you're just going to, you're going to either fall asleep or you're going to put that book away and say, okay, I will force myself to read it because if I've read it, then some, I may look good in front of my friends. So when I take a vacation, I'll put out two, three hours, I'll read it and then tell people... Uh, exactly and and why do that that's not me so I do I obviously have a long way to go in terms of improving my language developing more of a style but it's never going to be something where someone reads this and says what the hell was that guy talking about I don't want that I mean even if that's appreciated more so young writers this is the uh, common mistake that they make they you know they go way, the, the, the overuse of analogies, the, the overuse of theosauruses, I mean, words that are, are just not in, in common usage. And it's not, it's not a, a matter of um, pride, I think, for someone to, to, use, to, you know, to use really high funda language. And I, I don't believe in that. I mean, I respect people who do that. How do you strike a balance between overwriting or over-intellectualizing and uh, dumbing down, basically? Right. It's a very good question because at the end of the day, 
it depends on what your aim is with the book that you write. If you really want some, it to be food for thought about life and stuff, then you shouldn't dumb it down. You should, uh, okay, if this is your aim, that this is, you, you know, there should be food for thought, maybe it's a better idea to keep it at a level which is maybe slightly above, I would say slightly above the understanding of uh, a person who doesn't read regularly. I would go for that. But I don't believe in pulp fiction either. But at the same time, the one, one, uh, somebody who reviewed this book, I, I loved what he said that my stories were deceptively simple. So that, here's the aim. You, know, you have, I, I think you may agree, Tamara, that there's a lot of food for thought in this as well, but it's not so obvious. It's not so obvious. You think when you, globetrotting for love, the story itself, what I found was that girls who read it loved the character who cheated on so many men. They, they were really, they were like, oh, that's awesome. You mean, here's a story where guys continue to get screwed and nothing happens to the woman? And, and people really like that. They're like, uh, a lot of women, they, they found that, they, they found this kind of a person inspiring. And so the whole idea is people take different things out of, uh, and, and guys who read it were like, oh, poor thing, poor guys, and you know, and girls were like, oh, great, we love this person. And there's this story, the first story, the cleaning lady. And I mean, the people love that story so much that there were ideas to make a play, uh, you know, a monologue about this woman. And, and what, this wasn't the intended effect, but we had a, um, a book event in Bhopal in India, the city which is known for that horrible tragedy that took place in 84. We had a book event there and people were describing the cleaning lady as a, as a model of patriotism. I thought that she was nuts when uh, she called everybody else uncultured and uncivilized and when she told the Armenian guys, I won't talk to you. But people were like, oh, see, she's so patriotic. She has old school values and she's holding on to those values. And I'm like, really? Is that how it came out? And I love that. Because you, you, you get these, uh, when you get this kind of feedback from people and they, they see something that you didn't think existed there, it, it makes you think that Oh wow, there is, there is something else there. But the whole idea for me with these stories was write every story purely from the point of view of the characters without, my, without me interfering and without me passing judgment. Just stay away, let these characters talk for themselves and you decide. You decide whether um, this, the, the guy who falls in love or kind of almost dates two sisters at the same time is is he a creep is he a psycho or is he just somebody who has no control over his emotions or is he this you know a casanova let let the reader decide that and and i also tried my best to to put in a few twists and turns and unfortunately i seem to have pissed off a few english people with the stories that concern the brits they didn't like a term gastarbeiter uh, being used on a British person. They, somebody reviewed this and said that's quite ironic. I mean, we're expats. We're not gastarbeiters. You know, we, we do the world a service. So that offended them. And 
somebody who's very angry about uh, characterization of uh, a Londoner who uses words like blighty, chap, and but the point is, I tr I told this English lady that yes, but this man himself positions himself as a modern-day Robert Clive, the 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 person who you know is really the 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 main character in the evil East India Company story. So this guy thought of himself as a modern-day Robert Clive. And so obviously, he's not a typical Londoner who may not use those kind of words and, and stuff. But she, it was very, you know, she found that uh, offensive because it's, it's highly implausible. And then, of course, when the Brits, when they do review books, um, superfluous usage of articles, lexical confusions, prepositional misuse... And I, I just laughed at that, and I thought, oh my God, w was that what I was supposed to do? Uh, to make sure that a Ren and Martin grammar book's rules were completely adhered to? And the Americans laughed that off, and they said that, um, no, no, it's a question of being snooty. But I, I mean, I, I found that very amusing. But this, this great um, English woman, non-Londoner from Berkshire, that's not... It's the English language, right? It's not Berkshire like in America. Berkshire Hathaway is how they refer to it. But this is Berkshire. Also said that the, this was Pacey and the characters were interesting and uh, went to the extent of comparing me to Chekhov. And it's something I feel very uncomfortable with, of course, because he was just uh, someone I don't belong in the same sentence with. So, so when you hear something like that, like when you hear the point of view of a reader which is completely different from what you had in mind about one of your characters. How do you take that? Do, do, do you find it shocking or do, it, do you find it delightful? How do you deal with that? It's very interesting because the point is my whole aim was to try and make it look like uh, that I'm not assigning any judgment to any of these characters. So the, the cleaning lady who um, uses the, 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 the dirty rag to, uh, you know, the same dirty rag that she used to mop the floors used uh, to quote-unquote clean the, the Italian leather upholstery of a mafia man. Uh, the, the point is that I'm, I'm not passing judgment on either of those people and when people find something else in these characters and I realize one thing, that's a great thing because we're all multifaceted, there's no plain black and white and uh, it's a nice thing to, to see that people see this from another point of view people see this from a completely different perspective and that's something that I really I really appreciate that and of course feedback is really wonderful I mean sometimes I, I've gotten feedback like you know a person who's related to my neighbor told me oh this is such a nice and simple book that it needs uh, to be made compulsory reading for sixth standard students. So I said, thank you very much. And I laughed, I mean, but it annoyed a lot of people. I mean, you see, you realize that something like that is, is, is bullshit. But this superfluous article, I appreciate that. Because you know, you know where you can improve. But if someone just uh, trashes you and, and says, oh, it's a piece of junk, I would laugh at it because you know what? At the end of the day, it, if someone's going to give you such criticism, it means you've gotten under their skin so badly that they want to make such an attempt to insult you. And, and that's perfectly fine. I mean, for, ex you know, for instance, Jawaharlal Nehru wrote this beautiful book called The Discovery of India. 
And a very famous writer in India once told me it's a, it's a big piece of junk. And I didn't agree with him, but I thought, okay, there's, there's really nothing out there that you, know, you have universal acceptance of. It's, there's nothing that exists like that. I mean, for, for example, there was this film in the 90s called The Titanic. Uh, and I thought it was horrible. But I know every, I was, seemed to be the only person who didn't think that it was a very, I don't know, shallow, flimsy film that completely destroys the concept of love. And th that's what I thought. But, you know, a lot of people disagreed with me. And I was right in my way. They were right. Just a quick question for the benefit of any aspiring writers listening to this. Um, how did you make the transition from uh, journalist to author? Uh, and also, did you uh, take any writing courses in, in fiction writing? I mean, like, okay. uh, do you have any training in fiction writing? Uh, I absolutely have no training in fiction writing uh, and uh, no journalism qualifications either. <laughs> so it's, uh, I, for, journalism is really work in progress and it's something you just learn on the job. Because I remember rec at Reuters recruiting people from prestigious journalism schools. These were supposedly brilliant students, and they needed to be completely retrained from, from day one. So that, that was that, that's something. As for writing, to make this transition, well, it's not that difficult to do. I mean, it's, it's something, see, when you're writing, uh, in journalism, you have to be so strict uh, in sticking to facts and verifying and uh, writing is, is freedom. You can just, you, you, you know, if, if it's fiction, it's just, it's your imagination. Let it run wild. Write whatever you, that comes to your mind. You're not restricted. Journalism, you know, like I said, you're dealing with facts and you have to be extremely careful. When you're writing, who, who's to tell you what to do. You, it, it, it's a liberating feeling, I think, writing. So people who want uh, to get into writing, I think the most important thing is, what do you want to achieve with what you're going to write? That, that is really important. For me, when I wrote this book, the whole aim was, of course, I wanted people to, to take this virtual journey to the, the Russian Far East, to another place in time. Because I love situational stories, novels, and Think about what you really want to achieve from this book being out. And for me, when uh, you know uh, people read, the, they talk about this cleaning lady and make her a real hero and say that, oh wow, she's amazing, or some of the other women characters. And I've been labeled a feminist because you know the, the, apparently the women always end up get, getting the better uh, of the guys in the book. I don't, not, it was really not deliberate. But when you get these kind of, this kind of feedback and, and when you know someone just enjoys what you write. This morning, I spent time with one of my mentors, uh, Sibyl Vettesinghe, who's you know, a, a living legend here. She's um, 90 years old and she's been writing for decades. And she told me, she, she actually told me w w which stories that she really liked, what her favorites were, these characters. And that was, that was wonderful. Someone who I respect so much was a mentor of mine. Uh, for her to tell me, you know, it, it's a great feeling. So I, I feel that mission was accomplished uh, from, from that point of view. Last question, I guess. Uh, thoughts on the Sri Lankan literary scene? The Sri Lankan literary scene, I think, is really underrated. There's some excellent books that are, that are being, you know, 
th- that have been published out of Sri Lanka and they don't get the kind of uh, weightage and coverage that they that they deserve like for instance when last year we had the the Sri Lanka launch of my book it was a a small event at the the Russian Cultural Center in in Colombo i met some people who belong to the the Russian writer circle of Colombo and this is writer who's now i mean he's won some he, you probably have heard of him. his name is Ranjit Dharmakirthi and i read his books which are which are excellent and they're so relevant i mean i'm just sorry that these books aren't more wide more widespread in india it's only when one really big publisher picks up something and they have the distribution networks that books spread i mean there's an author i don't want to name but i'm sure everybody knows who i'm talking about excellent writer written great books but is essentially a pervert plenty of sexually explicit stuff in his books and those books can be found everywhere and I, and they deserve it but at the same time there's so many good writers here who've written and what i do is i prefer going to the sarasavis and vijtayap bookshops when i find books that i won't find in india that have been published here and some of them are absolute gems they're great stories they're great books but i hear from my friends here that uh the publishing industry has been ruined by vanity publishers in this country so if somebody wants to publish a book publishers expect them to pay for the publishing costs either through a buyback system of books or and you know for them and the ones that don't take money with distribution they say okay it's your job to distribute your books and your job to work with uh with other bookstores and stuff like that and unfortunately there's a in india one author mastered this concept of vanity publishing where he agreed to buy back 2000 copies of a book that's uh, that's published and then distribute them and manipulate the the amazon system where he do the buybacks through amazon so suddenly when 2000 copies of a book sell they become overnight best sellers then bookshops follow this now many publishers in india want this but here it's completely you still have a chance in india although it's still highly competitive of finding somebody who says okay we'll do this we'll invest in this but here i i see this you know even though a lot of great writing doesn't get that coverage and and there's also a, a serious problem here see i heard of martin vikramasinghe from my friends here uh but it's so difficult to find his books in english in in bookstores it's so difficult and and then the quality you find books with so many typos with spelling mistakes and the 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 quality of the paper isn't good see he's a national a treasure and his books should be promoted worldwide see this is a way of promoting sri lankan culture by making sure your literature your films are are spread around the world and when i for example i buy dvds of great sri lankan films and i screen them independently in different cities in europe and in russia because i want to promote this country and i'm doing it just out of love for for sri lanka but there doesn't seem to be a concerted effort to build the immense soft power uh that this country can have and it it's and you know with books in the literary scene it, it's all connected if if people are more supportive of each other with books and if the the lesser known titles are promoted more widely because i've read some apps i've read some great books and stories uh from here uh see for, i mentioned ranjit's uh book it uh, it's called the lone flower 
and it's 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 an absolutely beautiful story of uh, a Sri Lankan uh, going to Goa, and um, I mean it's probably based on the their stories that are based on the writer's um, trips to India, and a completely fresh perspective that you'll never get from an Indian writer because we take so much for granted there. In, in terms like you guys mentioned Jaipur today when we spoke off the mic but what a beautiful city it is but it's often people who are not from Jaipur not from India who really appreciate that city more so and there's a one writer whose books um, I, I found his collection of short stories way back in 2009 Ashok Ferry and Ferry's not his real uh, you know that's it's a, it's a pen name this good uh, Ceylonese girl, I think, that's the name of the, one of the stories. And that was brilliant. So much humor there. It's so funny. And, I mean, honestly, I would want to see a book like that when somebody goes to a Sri Lankan embassy or high commission. Something should be, you know, so that you can, you, you have to promote these kind of books. Because something like that really gives you a fantastic look at uh, urban life in Sri Lanka, life in Colombo, and you know there, there are quite a few other books that I've uh, that I've read, which um, you know have I know some of them have gotten this Gratian is that how you pronounce it Gratian Prize, but the, I mean the point is there has to be more of an effort because honestly it's very underrated the literary scene here. I always end up buying a lot of books when I go from here. I end up reading all of them really quickly. Uh, and um, you know there's some there are a lot of really talented uh, writers here and I, I think they need to really they don't have that kind of that that support that they, they should have and there should be more uh, for concerted effort uh, to promote that in fact I met um, last year when my book was launched uh, in uh, at, at the Russian Cultural Center there's this uh, Dr. W.A. Um, Abe Singer. He is he is a bureaucrat who's written more than 80 books and translated the works of Hemingway, Kamla Das, uh, many, many great writers into Sinhala. So some of his books are also really, really wonderful, but they don't have that kind of reach that they deserve. And, and, and this, I would, this extends as well to how many people outside Sri Lanka have heard of, except those who live breathe films have heard of Lester J. Peters who you know passed away recently or um, or even Prasanna Vithanage their, their films are outstanding when you think of South Asia the the Bollywood pop movies which I'm not a fan of some of them are nice they get all the attention but the art cinema scene here is again very good but the point is I, I don't think Sri Lanka Sri Lankans as a people do enough to promote their own country their own culture and it can be such a tremendous asset, you know, in, in the long run, because you want quality tourists coming here. You, you you want this because this is a this is a country full of intellectuals, and it it can turn into some sort of an intellectual hub of of I would say of all of Asia, and you you have the nature and the surroundings to support that, but there just doesn't seem to be this kind of a. I mean, I I. I I haven't met uh, too many people who are on the same page with me on when I talk about these kind of things. So that's how I would assess this. Right, okay. Before we sign off, I have one final question. Apart from your own book, what, what is the book 
uh, it it just it doesn't have to be one book. Uh, what is the book or books that you have gifted the most to other people? Gifted the most. Hmm. Let me think. Uh, okay, I've gifted uh, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment in different languages to people. They they really enjoy reading that. I've gifted a lot of Russian literature. Chekhov's books, Orhan Pamuk. Uh, I've gifted his books and um, and also lots of self help books <laughs> because it, it really does help. And I would just like to add one thing. Um, about uh, my book there are actually three signed copies so for people who are listening to this um you know there you're more than welcome uh, to contact uh, Tamara and Himal and uh, you know first come first serve uh, you know get your hands on this book and I would be very happy if you wrote a review on Amazon or uh, Goodreads let's just say it's a gentleman's or ladies agreement where you do that but you're more than welcome to to contact them about that yeah definitely i mean i have read, read ajay's book like i said i enjoyed it immensely and if any one of you out there want to get your hands on it just let us know and we'll send you a copy a signed copy yes um so ajay uh, where can people buy your book is it available in sri lanka or it amazon? it is it's it's available on amazon but i'm not sure about here in sri lanka but there's a website called sakalin in lanka okay and uh i it's not active i think we need to restart it right. but uh you can buy the book uh from that site as well right. but amazon should uh, be selling it here as well because it's it is available in in many countries and uh i've seen it in in bookshops in 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 russia and ukraine and thailand and nepal and uh i haven't seen it in bookshops here yet but there are ways like i mentioned right sure So where can people get in touch with you contact you? Uh I have a Facebook fan page. Right. Um we'll 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 share links to all these sure. in the show notes. Fantastic. So you can get in touch with me touch with me through the Facebook fan page. I always respond uh to to messages, to feedbacks and and once in a while when I get trolled uh, I somehow see humor in it and you know get back to people. So some I mean messages like you stupid Russian spy and uh Putin's propagandists and those things come to me as well even but you know yeah so Facebook Twitter um, and like I said I'm I've been coming here for since 2002 and I'm always ready to expand uh, the number of people that I know here and to interact more and to learn more because I I was in Jaffna just a few days ago and it was my first trip and something that I immensely enjoyed right okay so uh Himal, do you have anything else to add? Uh, yeah, so thanks a lot, Ajay, for uh, coming and uh, talking to us. And uh, we hope our readers are th- lucky winners. How, how are we going to do this? Are they going to... So we have three signed copies. That's right. Uh, and so whoever gets in yes. touch with you guys first or... Exactly. Uh, yeah. As long as they agree to write a little <laughs> review. <laughs> just just let us know. Like the, the first three people will get the three, three copies. All right, cool. Then... Uh, Catch you guys next time. Yeah. Peace.